flip to Romans 11. If you have a Bible, I'm going to follow along there. We are going to finish Romans 11 today. Finally, I feel like all these weeks of having to cancel has played, played a uh, toll in various ways on, on people, on myself. I did mention this before, um, but next week, Lord willing, as long as we're gathering, I'm going to do a 10-week series called Foundations, and that is going to be Biblical Doctrines for the Future of Christendom. And I'm going to go back to a lot of basics, but trust me when I say it, it may be some basic doctrine, but you will be stretched. So be prepared, especially if you take notes, make sure you have a, a pen full of ink. So um, just a lot to cover and a lot of things. I, I really want to, the first week we're going to talk about in, infallibility and authority and why the word of God is the word of God and why we need the word of God as our authority, that sort of stuff. So. We're going to kind of just walk through that, and the last week, Lord willing, I'm going to talk about culture and why culture is important, why it's an imperative for us. So when I say a basic series, it's going to be anything but basic. Uh, There'll be a lot to cover, so we're going to try to do that. All right, so we're in Romans 11, Romans 11, verses 25 through 36. So let's read our text, and then I'll pray. These are the words of God. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we come now to your word, not out of rote exercise, but out of humble adoration. We realize that theology without, uh, without worship is stale, and worship without theology is unintelligible. So we ask that your spirit grant us both theology and doxology, truth and worship. Your ways are inscrutable, and because of that truth, we pause and reflect today. Though we can't exhaust the inexhaustible God, we do come to your word to learn what we can. So open our minds and our hearts as we open up your word in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So uh, we've been for several weeks now working our way through the book of Romans. And it's a letter, just a reminder, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the heart of the Roman Empire, a church in Rome. Um, Having been to Rome and walked around and seen the Colosseum and having uh, visited a lot of historical places, it's, it's kind of a really unique thing to read a letter like this and then visualize and recall the places that that I visited. One place was a prison that was a couple layers down into the ground where they believed that Paul and 
and Peter were held before their trial. Um, of course, Paul was uh, beheaded, uh, presumably under, under Nero, and uh, Peter was, as church tradition teaches, crucified upside down. So kind of a, a, a humbling thing to stand there in that place where they probably were held before trial and, and see you know, the historicity of it. So here's Paul. He's writing this letter probably somewhere in the six, early 60s. 65 AD is when, as Chris alluded to earlier in his exhortation, um, 65 AD is really when Nero started to amp things up and persecution started to really happen in the early church. And, um, and so Paul's writing just before that. He's writing a letter to this church in the heart of Rome just before all of this. The year of our Lord, probably maybe 63, 62, 63, 64, probably right before that. Now, the church, we know, consisted of eth ethnically Jewish converts to Christianity. They were followers of Judaism, and then they realized by faith that Christ is the Messiah, so they came and they were converted. But that, so that was one segment of the church, uh, uh, probably a small house church, not terribly unlike ours. So one segment was ethnically Jewish converts. They came to Christ. And then you had another seg segment that was a, a Gentile or a pagan, someone who was not uh, really into the whole Judaism religion, but was probably worshiping the gods of the Greeks, Greek gods and Roman gods and the pantheons and stuff. They were converts to Christianity. So you kind of had this... Um, eclectic group, if you will. You also had a third category, which probably wasn't as big of a category, but it was someone who was a pagan who became a Jewish convert who then became a Christian. <laughs> so lots of chess pieces here, but that's, that's who would have been involved in this church. Now, Paul, we know from early on, he's entirely unashamed of the gospel. So he sorts out all of the theological quandaries that go with this type of thing, practical difficulties, practical socio-economic um, concerns that you have when you bring a motley crew together. Uh, that's just the nature of it. When you have people of different backgrounds coming together, um, there are things, there are perhaps tensions that you have to sort through. So no doubt there was some level of social tension in the church. Read the books of First and Second Corinthians and you'll get the tension. <laughs> Sometimes it's really palpable. Apparently that they didn't have the same issues. So Paul writes in order to fix this. And perhaps, for example, in this situation, you had a newly baptized pagan convert who was being poorly treated by some of the Jewish believers. Or maybe they looked down on them for being so late to the party. I was worshiping God and clearly Jesus is the Messiah and you just got converted yesterday and you were baptized as a pagan. So you're less of a you know, in the status chart here, I'm here, you're here. So there's this hierarchical tension, perhaps. It could have been the other way around. The pagans could have been um, con converts who looked at the Jewish believers and, and maybe they condescended to them, whatever the case may be. So either way, though, we know that Jesus had died. He, was, he had rose from the dead. He has ascended to, to heaven where he is now seated as Lord of the world. And Paul says that their job is to work together and join in this mission of seeing to it that every knee bow before the king, before King Jesus. And remember, this church in Rome, they are there. I mean, we're, you know, we're 40 miles west of the district of communism. I mean, Babylon. I mean, Washington, D.C. And 
but they were in the belly of the beast. They were right under Caesar's nose in the big metropolis that was the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. And their job was to go around and say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that's, you know, that, that was and remains the cry of the gospel message. Um, whether it's a quote-unquote pandemic or whether it's the atrocity of abortion or whatever these issues that we face today, at the heart of it, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So the whole resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. That's, that's the heart of the gospel message. Now, as I mentioned already before, and I think it does bear repeating because it is important, remember that Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a very, very, very dense portion of Scripture. If you're newer to Christianity, you might come along this passage in your Bible reading, and you may be left befuddled and confused. What is, what is he doing here? And rightly so. That's why I wanted to take our time through it. I want to make sure that we understand the first century dynamic in that church so that our church can be edified, so our church can grow. That's the whole idea. And as is typically or always the case, at least especially in the New Testament, this is a letter. Don't forget that. This is a letter that was penned um, for a specific purpose, a specific historical situation. So in large part, we're actually reading someone else's mail. We're reading a letter that someone else got from someone we know, but it was for them, not necessarily us. And so this idea that, that it's, um, it's, it's not necessarily for us directly, but it is for us in the sense that it is Scripture. So let's look, walk through the passage here today. Paul writes in verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, by the way, that, that word there is nations, ethnoi, same thing we get in the Great Commission, until the fullness of the nations, the Gentiles, has come in. So the mystery, Paul says, is not some sort of Gnostic heresy call, and Paul has the inside scoop, not that at all. When the Bible uses this word mystery, it simply means that part of God's previously hidden plan has now come to light. That's what he's speaking of. Remember, Paul was confronted by the risen Christ. His life was forever changed. He was a persecutor of Christians, and Jesus met him. Paul, in that minute, that moment, after he got his eyesight sorted out, which he never probably fully got it sorted out, um, after he was able to see again to some degree, he had to stop and go back to the Scriptures he had to go back over the scriptures and realize that with the aid of the Holy Spirit, that everything that the Old Testament pointed to was, in fact, of course, seemingly fuzzy in its own context. Now it's all come to light in the Messiah. So Paul has this like brand new set of exegetical glasses put on. Everything he thought he knew about the Old Testament came to light now with Jesus. And he had to go back and see Ah, that's what the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 meant. Ah, that's where all of this is pointing. It was pointing to, to Jesus. And what is the mystery? Within Israel, now remember, not all Israel are Israel. We have two groups, two groups of Israel. We have the believing remnant, and we also have the unbelieving reprobates. So we have the true Israel and the false Israel within this, is, quote-unquote, the Israel category. The unbelieving Israel, we know, Paul said already earlier, was hardened in judgment. Hardening is what God does 
to make sure the cup of iniquity is so full that when judgment comes, there will be no excuses. When you're talking to unbelievers today, do you ever get this feeling, whether it's a death score at an abortion clinic or a family member or somebody, you're, you're preaching the gospel. I mean, we had this recently at the, at the mill in, in Falls Church. I, we're preaching to them and you're just thinking their heart is so hardened. It's so hardened. They, will not, they, they won't even engage with you. Well, this, the theological reason is because judgment is upon him. And there's no, remember Romans 1, they're without excuse. They have no defense. There's no defense lawyer that comes in on the day of judgment and says, well, actually, Your Honor, we have quite a list of things that we can fight. and We believe we can win this case. None of that goes on. When God judges, he judges perfectly and righteously. So people like that are hardened and, and either it's so that the cup is so full and spilling out that there's no possible way. No one's going to go to the judgment of God and think, um, wow, I had no idea that was, I was so wicked. It's not. Your heart, your, heart, your heart will be so hardened, that's what's going to happen. And so the judgment comes when people don't take the graciously given time to repent. You know, I just, uh, the, the, the dancing lady at the death court there, and just like dancing away and just having this grand old time, and I'm, I'm just thinking, you have no idea, you have no idea the hammer that's going to drop on you. And here we've, we're preaching to you. I mean, we were giving them fire that day, and, and they're going to be held accountable to that. But that's what hardening does. So there's a partial hardening in Israel, and the reason is because God wants to bring the nations into the fold of the kingdom. The remnant stays on the covenant tree that we spoke of a couple weeks ago. The reprobates are cut off and burned in the fire. Now, I do believe that Paul is alluding to the soon coming judgment of A.D. 70. So I think that's in the, in the back of his mind. This hardening is done, quote, until the fullness of the nations has come in. So the hardening, here's my position, by the way. The hardening was done during the time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and A.D. 70. So this gave time for the nations to be preached to, for converts to come in and to be jealous about it. By the way, there's a couple unique sections in Colossians and later in Romans where Paul says that the gospel has been announced to the nations. Now, you and I look around and think, well, there are a lot of nations that the gospel needs to go to. There's a lot of people groups. You go to the Joshua Project website. I think that's what it's called. It's been a while since I've looked, but there are you know, some 3,000 plus people groups who have never had the gospel preached to them that we know of. So... Why would Paul say back in the first century, well, the gospel has been preached to the nations? Well, it went to Rome. Rome was it. Um, you know, you win America, you win the world sort of, sort of thing. And, and that was, you know, win China, you win Asia, that sort of thing. Um, if you can win Rome, you've won, won the world. So I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Look at verses 26 and 27. And in this way... All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Quoting from the prophets, Paul is essentially saying this. I'm paraphrasing here. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the fullness of the nations comes, comes in. And that process is the way in which God will save all of Israel. The deliverer of Zion 
Who's the deliverer from Zion? That's Jesus. He's the one whose atonement forgives. His atonement restores sinners. His coming secured the covenant tree of Israel. We're also told by the prophets that ungodliness will be banished in judgment. When it says the ungodliness, by the way, will be banished in judgment, poor kid fell on his head. He does that often. <laughs> when it says the ungodliness will be banished in judgment, again, I think that he's referring uh, to AD 70. I think that's a looming threat that Paul understands. So the all Israel, this is not without controversy, but the all of Israel here he speaks of is believing Jews and believing non-Jews, Gentiles, pagans. All Israel. They make up the Israel of God. That's Galatians 6.16. So this is a polemical redefinition of Israel. Paul is saying Israel as you've always known it is no more. This is a new version of Israel. This is a new Israel. And it's not in terms of what they think Israel is, but in terms of what God thinks about it. The, this is the true Israel. The true Israelites are the people, they're the ones who hail from Abraham. Go to Galatians. What does Paul say repeatedly? If you are of Jesus, you are of Abraham. So all of you here who've professed Christ, you've been baptized into his covenant, you're believers, Abraham is your great, great, great granddaddy. That's how that works. You have been brought into this tree. Christ is the root. Abraham's you know, down there hold, helping hold the tree together as well. You're a branch. That is your ancestry. That is, you're a part of that. Now, Paul explains this further in uh, verses 28 through 32. He says, As regards the gospel, they, unbelieving Israel, are enemies for your sake. As regards the gospel, they're enemies. By the way, the gospel, he says this earlier, but the gospel humbles the Gentiles who don't deserve to be there. Right? No, no, if, you're, if no true Christian can ever say, I deserve to be here. That is not how grace works. But, he says, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Just because partially some of them are hardened in unbelief doesn't mean that they, they don't belong on the tree. They're just being cut off so you can be grafted in. But they still belong there. They're, they're God's people. He says, for the gifts, I take the gifts to mean the covenant law, and the calling of God, God chose and covenanted with Abraham, right? They are irrevocable. God, God doesn't send Jesus to do something altogether different than the Abrahamic program. It's always been the plan. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, that's the Gentiles prior to salvation, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So unbelieving Israel's unbelief led the nations to believing, and the nations believing then will win the unbelieving Jewish people back. That's the idea. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Everyone has sinned and fallen short. We know that from Romans 3, which means that God puts every single person on this planet on a level playing field. And this is so that mercy that's shown to the elect of God can be shown to be mercy and not playing favorites. Okay, when, when God judges a pagan who is hardened and unrepentant, 
it is never unjust. When God elects and chooses and foreordains and brings you His Holy Spirit by His grace, pulls you into His covenant, sometimes, sometimes kicking and screaming, right? When He does that, what is that? That is grace and that is mercy. It's never, un, it's never an issue of un, um, injustice. Why? Jesus died. Jesus took the punishment. So all of this theology has driven Paul to one place, by the way. How does he end the chapter? Worship and praise of the triune God. Look at verse 33. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, right? His gifts, his orchestration of history, his brilliance. How unsearchable are his judgments. Try plumbing the depth of his judgments. How unsearchable. You can't even search it out. How inscrutable his ways. Can, can we exhaust the inexhaustible God? Can we fatigue the indefatigable God? Can we but scratch the surface of the source of all knowledge and wisdom? You know, the, pre, the, the presuppositional apologetic that is uh, uh, well-known, made widely popularized by Cy Tenbrugge and Cates uh, to answer the fool. This issue of knowledge. How do you know? How do you, do you know all things? I mean, for us, we know knowledge because God is knowledge. He knows all things. All things possible, all things probable, everything He knows. So that's our source of, of understanding. And verse 34, it's a quote from Isaiah 40 and Job 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Right? Anyone have the inside track on the mind of the infinite? Anyone? Has any of... You been, have any of you been called on to give God advice on what he should do in a certain situation? <laughs> no, he doesn't have counselors. He is his own counselor. Verse 35, a quote from Job again. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Can, can we, with this infinite indebtedness, pay God with our finite fiat currency? Can't do it. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen, he says. God is the giver. He's the deliverer. He's the sustainer and the purpose of all things. His glory is immaculate. It's fit only for holiness and beauty. That is the nature of God. We're going to talk about the doctrine of God in a couple weeks from now. But And God's people are to reply, reply amen. And amen simply is a word that means let it be true. Truly, truly. Again, you can't end your prayer in a woman. It makes no sense. Which happened, as some of you know. Now, if, if, if you or I were to write a lengthy theological treatise like this, we might not end it the way Paul does here. This is largely because anti-intellectualism has plagued the pietist church, pietistic church. So there are two ditches that you, you could fall in on these sort of things. One... You could fall into the ditch of Christian rationalism, Christian ra ra rationalism, which is, which says that the only important thing you need is doctrine and theology. That's the only thing you need. So don't worry about your emotions. Don't worry about feelings. You know, just stuff your feelings away. Um, the mind has to be cultivated, and that's it. That's Christian rationalism. That's a ditch. Ditches are bad. <laughs> now, there's a second ditch, the ditch of what I'm calling Christian sensationalism which says, don't worry about theology, only worry about how you feel in the moment. Those are two bad ditches, okay? 
Now, obviously there are extremes and the spectrum has some variation depending on who it is we're talking about and what the situation is, so on and so forth. But, for example, our tradition. So we are generally Reformed. Um, many of us are Reformed Presbyterian in that tradition. We love doctrine. We love doctrine. Um, we think it to be wonderful. I don't know if you guys know I love books. Uh, it's, it's a thing that I love dearly. And they're packed up, which actually makes me somewhat sad <clears throat> at the moment because I don't want them to feel lonely. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> my friends are... Yeah, anyway. So I really, really, really love books. I like to read books all the time. And uh, if we go to the beach, and my wife likes the beach, and we don't love the sand, sand gets in everything, but I like to have a book there. Uh, even if I don't read it, I like, to, I like to hold the book. So, all right, enough of that. Um, <laughs> but what can happen when rationalism takes over your life? What can happen when the only concern in your life is getting the answer to the test correct? What can happen? Or making sure that you're only concerned about learning more and more in your mind. I think Chris used the phrase um, intellectual self-pleasurers. That stuck out to me. That's something we've talked about a lot. But it's that idea of more and more knowledge, but you're actually distant from people and you don't really do well in social settings and you're just sort of a brain and that's it. What happens when you're a Christian rationalist? So this form of anti-intellectualism is that you have cardened off the rest of your life and found the only thing of importance to be doctrinal matters. So this is a huge temptation for the Reformed crowd. We have a t tradition of intellectualism. You think of Calvin's Geneva and, 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 and Theodore Beza and um, all the people associated with that, Pierre Verey and others that really built an intellectual foundation, truthfully, for Western civilization. Western civilization wouldn't be what it is today, um, or I shouldn't say what it is today, we've kind of messed that up, but it wouldn't have never been what it was without Calvin and Geneva and the intellectual foundations of the Reformation, no doubt. But on the other hand, we have another form of anti-intellectualism that balks at books and doctrine and knowledge. This is Christian sensationalism, we might call it, and it's only concerned about 10-minute Hillsong ballads to make sure that you feel important. And they do. They're like 10-minute long songs. It's just ad nauseum. So this is like the rationalism error in that and it's a horrible ditch to fall in because, again, you're still cordoning off, cordoning off the rest of your life from... Uh, your feelings from the rest of human life. So you're, you're, you're making the same error just in a different direction. So both of these ditches have their origins in Greek metaphysics and, and dualism, this dualistic view of the world. The spirit's good, the body's bad, so just abuse your body now, who cares? You know, sexual licentiousness and so on. You know, just be free, that sort of thing. <laughs> I saw this again this week and it makes me angry. But the, the comment, love is love. And, and I just think, well, you can't define a word by itself, by its own. But it's, that's the mantra, though. Well, just love is love. And that means what? I get to do whatever I want. That's a sensationalist view. Anyway, so theology, children, theology is the study of God. What is theology? The study of God. The study of God. Okay, we got one listening. Good. The study of God. And doxology is the study, or the, excuse me, the praise of God. Okay, 
So theology is the study of God. Doxology is the praise of God. And those things go together. And Paul clearly thinks the same thing. Why else would he end Romans 11 this way? He has just spent a great deal of time, Romans 1 through 11, plumbing the depths of the kingdom of God, intellectual overload almost, trying to, to handle all of these theological issues. He's, he ends it here. He's, he's sorting out the relational strain in the church by giving them sound doctrine. Right? You, we all need to be renewed in the mind. He's going to come to that, by the way, in the next chapter. But we need to have a renewed mind. We need to think properly about our situation and not be fully given over to emotions. But don't think so hard about your situation that you forget to feel. So there, those are the ditches. So we, we should be in pursuit of sound doctrine, no doubt. So a question for you all. So like, let's apply this. Are you studying to show yourself approved? That's 2 Timothy 2.15. Are you reading? Or do you just think, well, books are not my thing, so I won't ever do anything with them? Are you? Are you spending time learning more about the Bible, reading the Bible, um, reading people who write about the Bible, that sort of thing? Do you have set goals for yourself when it comes to growing in your theology and your understanding of the Bible? Are you, um, as Doug Wilson calls it, productivity? Are you chipping away day by day, little by little? You know, you can read a couple chapters a day and at the end of the year you've read 20 books very easily or more depending on their size. And you look back and think, wow, I've, I've done this. This is, this is great. And since we're whole persons created in the image of God, how are you doing emotionally? How are you doing emotionally? Are you learning more about yourself? Are you becoming more self-aware as a person? We talked about that in the Reconstructing the Heart. Have you ever gotten to the point where you can say to someone, tell me your experience of me. What am I like? Am I a terrible listener? Am I impatient? What am I like? I need Because we don't always see ourselves for who we are. But may, you know, especially if you're married, then those words of wisdom come without even asking. But <laughs> let me tell you how unself-aware you are today, bucko. But anyway, so are, are you working with the Lord in prayer? Are you working with accountability with others? How are you managing stress in your life? Now, we don't have to choose the ditch. Rationalism, sensationalism. We can actually just drive right in the middle. We can. Now, Paul's doxological ending to the chapter is very, very rich. It's quite rich. Eleven chapters of theology, and then he blurts out this word of praise. It's as though he's reached the top of the mountain, he's looked back, and he's considered the enormity of the journey. Ever go up to the Shenandoah, and you pull off, and you look out, and you actually try to find, how did I get up here? And, and depending on the time of the year, it's hard to see the road where you came up. And you, you look back, and you think, wow, this is cool. I think Warrington's over there. And you really try to... This is Paul on his journey in the letter. Having considered how God intends to put the world to rights through the cross and the resurrection, um, God's created order, his choosing of Abraham, God's puzzling way of working his people in history. So having considered all of these things, Paul takes a careful breath, a deep breath, and he breathes out this celebration of the bigness and the godness of God. 
And he asks a bunch of rhetorical questions and makes, makes it obvious where he stands. At the end of the day, when we consider the width and the breadth of the gospel of the kingdom and all the enigmatic ways that God works to orchestrate his purposes of, of the gospel, when we've exhausted our minds in pursuit of understanding the person who is the source of all knowledge, the end of that pursuit ought to be the praise and the worship of God. If you don't end your Bible reading or your book reading with a, wow, God, you are amazing, then you're not doing it right. Hodge rightly points out that the apostle here stresses three things. One, the incomprehensible character and infinite excellence of the divine nature and dispensations. That's God's works in history. Two, God's entire independence of man. He is God is the uncreated one who is there, who is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer likes to say. And three, three, his comprehending all things within himself. God comprehends all things within himself. He's the source. He's the means. He is the end of all things. From him and through him and to him are all things. To put it, put it another way, let's just pause for a second. God is an incredible God. We cannot fully understand him, but we can a little. And the very little that we can understand is enough to drive us to the worship and praise of God, the worship and praise of him. God is God, man is man. Man does not become God. That's a different religious exercise and program. He is the source of all good things, the means by which those things come to pass, and he is the goal of where it is going. God's justice and grace and mercy and his wrath are on display in the world. And the, proper, the only proper response to the consideration of the glory of God is a humble praise of him. See, humanity is healed when men stop to consider the glory of God. That's how healing takes place. Paul ends with this note. He says, to him be glory forever. To him be glory forever. Giving God glory is what we're supposed to do all along. That's what Romans 1 said we weren't doing when we sin. Because of our sin, we fell short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We were to honor God with our minds, with our feelings, with our bodies. But we didn't. Notice all of those things went crazy in Romans 1. Instead, we chose to honor ourselves. We chose a debasing of the mind. We chose a corruption of our feelings. And there's a reason he brings up homosexuality in, in, in Romans chapter 1. That is the ultimate degradation of your body. An entire misuse of what God has given your body for. See, when sin enters into a person, remember, we're born into sin, the person is sorely wounded. He is made in the image of God, but the image is stained. It is tattered by rebellion. This image, while it is always present in all humans everywhere at all times, it isn't always complete. It's not always complete. A, a broken window is still a window situated on the sash, but if it's cracked, it's not what it's supposed to be. Such are we apart from Christ. The crack in the image is a division of man. He is at odds with God, with the world, with his neighbor, and with himself. However, we know that the gospel restores the first, which then spills over into the other three. If your relationship with God is restored, it can then start to be restored in with your neighbor, with the world, and frankly, with yourself. 
you can start self-appropriating things the way you should be because you know who God is. When someone becomes a Christian by repentance and faith in Christ, the image is healed. She is now in Christ. But her relationship with the world doesn't magically change, nor does her relationship with her neighbor. The deeper, <clears throat> the deeper issue pertains to her relationship with herself. She might struggle with feeling valued by God, despite the gospel's proclamation that she is valued by God. Her relationship with herself is still in the process of healing. Now, I say all of this because the healing process, this healing within ourselves, the healing outside, like with the neighbor, with the world, and so on, it's only accomplished through the knowledge and praise of God. There's a reason when this pandemic hit, we didn't fall on our knees and declare, the president should have declared a week of fasting and prayer before God. But no, we gave Fauci the microphone, and look what that's gotten us. He became the highest paid federal employee in 2019. Made half a million dollars salary. We didn't cry out to God. We didn't cry out to God in worship. We turned to the philosopher kings, or now they're called the science kings. That's who we turned to. We didn't. We didn't go for the healing God gives. We decided to go with the shortcut way with synthetic, synthetic drugs and other things that cause harm. So we know God. When we know God, we worship God. That's the idea. When you know him and you start to embrace the entirety of who he is and trying to um, ascertain the um, God who is inexhaustible, right? You can't know him completely, but you, you pull and you try to grab what you can grab to know who he is. When you know him then guess what? We worship him. That's the idea. So to know God is to pursue God, and to pursue God is to worship God, to sing, to pray, to search the scriptures, and apply this faith to all of life. That's the worship of God. His ways are indeed inscrutable, but that's not the same thing as saying we can't know anything. We can know things. See, theology is what is supposed to drive us to doxology. Study of God drives us to the praise of God. We're supposed to want to know God more and more and more, to know his ways, to know him as a real person that we engage with on a daily basis. And that knowledge ought to lead us to belt out in praise of him. And I think that's one of the biggest issues, by the way, as we wrap this up, <clears throat> one of the big, biggest issues facing the church today. People want to be lulled to death by a Bethel song inoculated by this feel-goodism. And they do this because they don't have a faith for all of life to work through. They're bored with theology, so they'd rather not try to get to know God. They just want to feel God. They'd rather just feel Him. And feeling God apart from knowing God is merely the installation of an idol in your life. So church, we must know God. And we must know him as he is, not as what we wished him to be. Key point. We must know, know him as he is and not what we wished him to be. We, we must know what he demands, what he requires. And children, you all need to know these things too. You need to know what God requires of you. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and the people of God with conviction in their bellies together said, Amen. Father, we come to you in, in, in glad adoration, knowing that taking a book like Romans that has so many theological angles and, 
and uh, oftentimes angles and twists and turns that are almost confusing. Um, even Peter told us that Paul's writings are hard to understand. But at the end of the day, though we may not fully comprehend, we know that we are to worship and praise you. And so we do that today with hearts of gladness and joy. We pray for um, the people who couldn't be here, the many people who couldn't be here today, that you would bring healing to them, that they would in fact know you and worship you today to, to be um, in tune and in step with your Holy Spirit in their lives as well. Uh, Father, we are about to partake of communion and our meal together, our agape fest, so we ask and pray your blessing upon that. In Christ's name, amen.